Second Chronicles chapter 26, verses 1 to 15. Then all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in the room of his father Amaziah. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah, after that the king slept with his fathers. Sixteen years old was Uzziah when he began to reign, and he reigned fifty and two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah did. And he sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. And he went forth and warred against the Philistines, and brake down the wall of Gath, and the wall of Jabna, and the wall of Ashdod, and built cities about Ashdod and among the Philistines. And God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians that dwelt in Gerbel and the Mahunians. And the Ammonites gave gifts to Uzziah, and his name spread abroad even to the entering in of Egypt, for he strengthened himself exceedingly. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate, and at the turning of the wall and fortified them. And he built towers in the desert and digged many wells. And he had much cattle, both in the low country and in the plains, husbandmen also and vine dressers and in the mountains and in Carmel, for he loved husbandry. Moreover, Uzziah had a host of fighting men that went out to war by bands, according to the number of their account by the hand of Jeal, the scribe, and Masai, the ruler, under the hand of Hananiah, one of the king's captains. And the whole number of the chief of the fathers of the mighty men of valor were 2,600. And under their hand was an army, 300,000 and 7,500, that made war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. And Uzziah prepared them throughout all the host. And Uzziah prepared for them throughout all the host shields and spears and helmets and habergeons and bows and slings to cast stones. And he made in Jerusalem engines invented by cunning men to be on the towers and upon the bulwarks to shoot arrows and great stones withal. And his name spread far abroad, and he was marvelously helped till he was strong. You may be seated. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. There was... A few scriptures I thought would be fitting to read before the sermon. I chose what I thought would be the lesser known one, the one that Dave read so well in Second Chronicles just now. Another scripture that we'd like to look at uh, quite a bit today is Isaiah 6, and that is the text for today. But maybe you want to just stay in Second Chronicles for a few minutes as we think about Uzziah and his deeds for just a bit. 
when you get to Isaiah 6, you will meet Uzziah again. You will immediately see him. And that provides a backdrop and a context for what was going on in Isaiah's experience at that time. But, but again, just for a moment, if we, let's just think a little bit about the men, Uzziah and Isaiah, and that moment in Israel, or more specifically in the nation of Judah's history. Uzziah, obviously, from what was just read, besides being a godly person, a godly king, was also very gifted in areas of all oh, leadership and management and administration and inventiveness. I especially note that word invented, that verb invented in verse 15 of Second Chronicles 26. All kinds of accomplishments, a good variety of things that he was good at, that he enjoyed, and that he helped his kingdom grow in during his long, illustrious career. I, I'm especially intrigued by verse 10, uh, that of farming and husbandry and that kind of thing. For some reason, that quality in him stood out to me just a little bit. He... Yes, he had a long reign, 52 years, the record says, there in verse 2, verse 3, and that was the longest reigning king in the history of, in the biblical history of Israel or Judah. We do, with all that, sadly need to also notice and mention how that when he was strong, verse 16, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. And the verses following will comment on that in more detail. This all happened about 2,830 years ago, and his problem there, his his sin, and all of the repercussions of that is just about as modern as tomorrow's headlines. Too often, too often it happens that when one has lots of accomplishments that he is tempted to arrogance. That was the case here. We can see that various other places in Scripture. And we can see it in modern times. And I think if we're honest, we can see that in our own lives, that tendency, that accomplishment equals arrogance. Now, that's not always the case. There's those that have very puny accomplishments and that also are tempted to that sin of pride. But too often, arrogance goes with accomplishment. And I notice in verse 19... Still in Second Chronicles 26, I noticed that, well, the fourth word, do you see it there? Very often, 
arrogance and anger go together. And I think that we, you, me, can somewhat gauge our pride factor by how easy it is for us to become angry. And maybe for you and for me, we should, maybe I should have a little conversation with the Lord about that and allow His Holy Spirit just to remind me of that again. And, and maybe I should, and maybe you should too, even ask your spouse or your parents or your friend or your siblings how we are doing in that of arrogance and anger. Amaziah, I'm sorry, Uzziah failed that test that, that long ago day. And I'm just, I just expect that in those 10 years or so, I think people think that he, was, he suffered from leprosy for maybe 10 years before he died. I would just guess and hope and expect, I really would expect that he confessed that and repented of that sin he had plenty of time to do that. But even then, in, the, in that decade, perhaps, when he was suffering from leprosy as a result of his sin and dwelling in a, as the Bible says, a several house there in verse 21, even then, his reign in conjunction with his son Jotham provided stability I think, for the nation, for his son, and for the nation. But now the king was dead. And maybe you want to move now to Isaiah 6. And notice that first phrase there. In the year that King Uzziah died. In the year that King Uzziah died. The king was dead, and Judah's, oh, we could call it mini golden age, appeared to be dead with it. There was problems on the horizon. After that long time of, of good leadership, of progress nationally, and the fact that he was a righteous king, all of a sudden, things seem to be different. And for Isaiah, the loss wasn't just national, but I think personal, too. The fact that his king had died, people think, don't know how they know this, that Isaiah's son Amos, Isaiah was the son of Amos, you can see that in Isaiah 1.1, Isaiah... Isaiah's dad, Amos, it's thought, was a brother of King Amaziah. If that was the case, then you might know how that Uzziah, son of Amaziah, and Isaiah were related. Maybe you can figure that out. The dad, their dads were brothers, they th perhaps. Can you imagine the nation's mood after all of this? Probably 
prevalent in that mood was one of vulnerability. Our king is dead. Of fear, of uncertainty about the future, about perhaps the thought that certainly our best days are over. What is going to happen? And maybe you're thinking just now about how that, what I just, what we've just been thinking about kind of lines up very well with the devotional this morning. Thank you, Ivan, for that. Also from those verses that you talked about in the book of Isaiah. A number of years ago, maybe five or six for a guess, I noticed that my eyesight was failing. And some ways that I realized that that was the case is because I think I remember one time bringing my, our daughter Stephanie home from, the, home from the airport, and I needed her help in getting out of that airport and getting onto the right um, highways and so on, because I couldn't read the road signs very well, and she needed to help me so I knew which lane to be in and those kind of things. About that time, our son Stanley also kind of was concerned because he noticed that uh, a business sign, a local business sign that he could easily read, I couldn't. And he thought it was time that I do something about that, so eventually I did. And about four years ago, I was diagnosed with having cataracts in both eyes, and as well as in one eye having a deformed retina. I think, I think I remember that retinas are supposed to be round, but mine was all squashed, and so it was no wonder that I wasn't seeing very well. So we scheduled surgery, and I had the surgery two different times for the two different eyes, and I noticed almost right away how improved my eyesight was. It was a great blessing. I could see much better without my glasses now than I could previously with my glasses. And the doctor said that I shouldn't get my prescription changed for a while till my eyes heal and everything. So a number of months, so for a couple months I went without glasses, being able to see better than previously. And then when I got glasses again with the correct prescription, I was able to see much better yet. And it was a great blessing. I needed better vision, and God provided it for him and for me, and I thank him for that. Isaiah was a man, now that the king Uzziah had died, that needed a better vision, needed better spiritual vision, like I needed better physical vision. Isaiah needed better spiritual vision, and he was able to get it, because in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord. I saw also the Lord. So let's just think about this better vision that God blessed Isaiah with here in Isaiah 6. Better vision of the glory of God. And as we think about that, as we're... I'd like to think about the better vision of the glory of God and then move on to think about the better vision of sinful self 
then the better vision of freedom, the freedom of being forgiven, and then fourthly and finally, the better vision of responsibility and response. We're thinking now of the first number of verses here, the first four verses, about the better vision of the glory of God that Isaiah experienced that day. And in so doing, let's just look at seven words. The first word that I'd like to just highlight a bit is that word also. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord. Also. What does that mean? What's included in that? Why is that word included? Wouldn't it work just as well to say that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord? But the Bible says that I saw also the Lord. Well, I like to think, I like to think that Uzziah might have seen a similar scene, a scene like this after he died. I'd like to think that he went to heaven. Isaiah, uh, Uzziah, King Uzziah might have seen such a scene, but now in death, after death, but Isaiah, his cousin, was blessed to see it while he was still being here on earth. If, If indeed that's the case, We're treated here in Isaiah 6 to a preview of what heaven or what part of heaven might be like. Maybe so, perhaps so. The word also. Then I see the word throne, the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Throne equals kingship, you know. Kings sit on thrones, and only kings sit on thrones. At a time where a good, righteous king, in general, had vacated his throne through death. But this vision, or this that Isaiah saw, made it obvious and clear that up in the heavenlies, Nothing had changed. Though things didn't look quite so well down on earth, up in heaven where God was, nothing had changed. He was still sitting on his throne high and lifted up. And there was no danger that the scepter was slipping out of his hands or that the throne, or that the crown was slipping off his head. Certainly not. No, no, no. Nothing had changed. And it's also quite clear to us that in the 2,830 years about since that, nothing has changed up there since either. And we could say that just a little bit more emphatically by saying that in the last 360 days, 365 days or so, in the last year, nothing has changed in heaven, and God is still on his throne, and he is still high and lifted up. We do well sitting here to get a better vision of the glory of God. He's on his throne. Did you think about it that, if I have my chronology correct, that the service last year on this Sunday was the last service that we had here for, what was it, six or eight weeks. 
Nothing has changed in heaven, and so those of us who are down here don't need to worry about things down here. So, we thought about the word also, and we thought about the word throne. How about moving to the word train? His train filled the temple, still in verse 1. On June the 3rd, 1953, some of you were alive back then, Queen Elizabeth II was coronated as, at, over there in, in Great Britain. And as part of the ceremony, or she was dressed in a, I guess, a purple dress, perhaps. Anyway, we're told that her dress included an 18-foot long royal purple velvet train. And it took six maids of honor to help her along and carrying that train as she walked along. But don't forget that the train that God has here fills the temple. It's even longer than 18 feet, I believe. And let me just read this quote by Nancy Ruig, who says, In ancient times, the flowing train on a monarch's robe was a symbol of glory and splendor. To understand the importance of a train, we have to remember that in those days, all clothing had to be constructed from scratch. Fibers of cotton, linen, or wool, or wool had to be spun into thread, Threads had to be woven into cloth. Cloth had to be cut and sewn into garments by hand. It was a time-consuming process. Only the rich and powerful could afford to add extra length to their robes. The longer the train, the more glorious and splendid the king. And as he paraded past his subjects, the length of his robe was meant to impress. Isaiah's statement conveys the magnitude of God's glory compared to any earthly king or queen. Symbolically, the robe represents God's infinite splendor and majesty, his glory. As one preacher explained, air is the atmosphere of earth. God's glory is the atmosphere of heaven. One day, we will breathe God's glory. That gives me goosebumps. End of quote. In verse 2, the Bible talks about the seraphim. Let's think about that just a little bit. What is a seraph? Well, it's a particular order of angels, I guess. The word seraph means burning ones. And Jack Peters has said, helpfully to me, because I always wondered kind of about those six wings and the two that covered their faces and two that covered their feet and with two that they flew with. He says that the fact that two of the wings covered their faces speaks of, of reverence. And the two that covered their feet speaks of humility. And the two with which they fly speaks of service. Well, I like that thought. He goes on to say that, think about it, that that means that there's twice as much 
Twice as many wings that have to do with worship. Remember, reverence and humility. We're thinking about the glory of God and that better view, that better vision that Isaiah saw that day. So four of the wings have to do with reverence and two of the wings have to do with service. When he wrote that, when I read that, I remembered that way back when I was in the instruction class, back in 1972, I, the books that we used then, I remember that the one chapter had to do with consecration or worship, and the next one had to do with service. And I think I remember, kind of think I remember how that uh, the pastor that was talking about those made that point too, or maybe the book did, that worship is more primary than service. First, it's proper to worship the Lord, and then from that stems our service to Him. And I think maybe we see that picture in Isaiah 6-2 by the fact that four wings have to do with worship and consecration. Remember, we're thinking about the glory of God. And then from that stems two wings for service. Well, we need to talk about the holy in verse 3, do we not? We wouldn't do to skip that. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Like you know, the holiness of God is the only attribute of his that in Scripture is given in triplicate. You know, holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 or that God is just, just, just. But it does say that holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Once in the Old Testament, Isaiah 6, and once in the New Testament, Revelation 4, 8. And to me it's significant, and I don't think I had ever noticed before, is that the Old Testament one here in Isaiah 6, who's saying that? Well, the angels are. In the New Testament one, in Revelation 4, 8, who's saying that? The four beasts in heaven. And the Bible goes on to say there, um, you can check me to see if I'm saying it right, that these four beasts, day and night, are there saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. What is holiness anyway? What is holiness Well, like Ivan said, that would be a topic for another day. Quickly, before we keep moving on, that holiness, and I quote from Ray Pritchard, holiness, anything is holy that is set apart for God. Anything is holy that is set apart for God. That's why we call the Bible the Holy Bible. It contains the Word of God. We call Israel the holy land because it is the land he chose for his own people. The angels are holy angels because they belong to God. The Sabbath is holy because he set it apart for himself. And when Moses stood before the burning bush, he was told to take off his shoes because he was standing on holy ground, ground that God had set apart for himself. 
holiness. It's something that is set apart for God. And it goes without saying, doesn't it, that holiness and sinfulness are complete and polar opposites. And where there is sinfulness, unconfessed sin, there cannot be holiness. But remember that God says, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, set apart for God. We as God's people strive by the grace of God to be holy. We can't be without his holiness uh, covering us. Thank God that he is holy. He has called us to holiness, to be set apart for God with no sin. I look at the verb moved in verse 4, and we could say, as has been suggested by somebody, that moved um, symbolizes the power of God, the fact that the building shook, it moved. And smoke, also there, the house was filled with smoke, symbolizes the presence of God. Remember back on Mount Sinai, when God appeared to Israel there and gave them the law, the Ten Commandments, the law? The mountain was full of smoke. Moved symbolizes the power of God. Smoke symbolizes the presence of God. So we've talked about those seven, these seven words now, all having to do with gaining a better vision of the glory of God. I wish I could do better in portraying the glory of God. Let's think now about verse 5. So if in verse one through, verses 1 through 4 we see how that Isaiah saw a better vision of the glory of God, in verse 5 we see that he had a better vision of his own sinful self. That's easy to see there, isn't it? Woe is me, for I am undone and because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Thinking especially of that undone word. Different places, I noticed that different people say that it means dumb. I'm undone, or I'm speechless. You know, kind of like Job was when God came to him and showed him some of his glory. Job said, I'll lay my hand to my mouth. Dumb. Woe is me, I am dumb. I, I can't speak because of the glory of God. Other people say it means destroyed. Put that there, for I am destroyed. Or dead, I am dead. Or, in my words, done for, undone. As Isaiah saw the glory of God and the holiness of God there in the temple that day, or in the heavenlies, wherever that was, he understood better than ever. He had a better vision of his own sinful self. And we see that in the word unclean that he uses twice there too. That is what lepers were required to cry when people got close to them. You know, unclean, unclean. 
they would say, and, and that was a sure sign that people needed to move back and stay away from these leprous people. Leprosy made men, that disease of leprosy made men most miserable. For one thing, it was a terminal illness in the most terrible, slow way of dying. It deadened um, the body parts, it defiled, it destroyed. It was the most terrible and slow way to die. But not only that, it cut off all benefits and all the blessings of home and church and family and community. Unclean. And that's what Isaiah says, that he is spiritually unclean. The leprosy of sin spiritually. I am unclean, he says. I have unclean lips. Isaiah reminds us that leprosy equals sin. Leprosy, that sin certainly deadens and it defiles and it destroys. We know about that. I think, we think, I think that Isaiah had been a prophet before this. Isaiah 1.1 would indicate that, that he had probably been prophesying for a number of years. He was a godly man, people thought, and certainly he was one of the most righteous people in the nation of Israel. He was one of the most Christian people in that Christian nation, if I can use those terms. And not only that, but he had connections in high places. Remember, he was the cousin of the king, we think. But when he acquired that better vision of the glory of God that day, he also attained a better vision of his own sinfulness. And certainly, that is always the case, that when one of God's children is able to see more clearly God's glory and his holiness that automatically along with that will become a greater and a better view and vision of his own sinfulness. When we look around, when we look at each other, uh, some of us ha could have a feeling of smugness and accomplishment and complacency and even comfort because I'm almost as good as he is, and maybe I'm a little better than she is, and you know. It's a little bit like this white shirt, perhaps. Let's just say that I would wear this white shirt um, every day for a month. And you could imagine what that shirt might look like from your vantage point, from where I am, after a month of wearing this white shirt every day, it might still look kind of white to you, but if we would compare this white shirt with a white shirt that we, we just took off of the store shelf, do you think there would be a difference? Maybe so. Yes, there would be a big difference. What's that? A little bit that way, perhaps. When we, how do we compare ourselves with others? Or do I compare myself with the glory of God? When I compare myself with the glory of God and the holiness of God, 
and see God as he really is. The imagined white shirt of my life will become very dirty and terrible indeed. Do you remember what Peter said that day? Oh, it's given in Luke 5, 8. Uh, one day they were out fishing, or one night, I guess, they couldn't, didn't catch any fish. And then Jesus came to the shore and said, cast your nets on the other side. And then they got lots and lots of fishes. Remember what Peter said? I think it's interesting that he didn't say, thank you, Lord, for the fish. God bless you. What a great God you are. What he did, the Bible says, was he fell at Jesus' knees and said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Kind of similar to what Isaiah here says, woe is me, for I am undone and I am unclean. To quote Ray Pritchard uh, once again, and, and then we will move on. So it is that whenever we see God for who he is, we will then see ourselves for who we really are. Holiness leads to confession and repentance. If you haven't cried out, I am a man of unclean lips lately, it may simply indicate that you've not seen the king lately. Let's talk about verses 6 and 7. So verses 1 through 4 have to do with the better vision of the glory of God. And verse 5 very clearly shows Isaiah's better vision of, sinful, of his own sinful self. And we ourselves here in the 21st century. In verse six is, verses 6 and 7, we, we see a better vision of the freedom of being forgiven. This... This live coal was taken off the altar. And the altar was where atonement was made, you know, where sacrifices were made for the atonement of sin. And atonement, W.E. Vine says, means to cover or to pacify. I like that thought of to cover. When, our, when my sins are atoned for, when the sacrifice has been offered on the altar, when my sins have been atoned for, they're covered. They're covered. Covered over. In Leviticus 16, well, the word atonement is most often used in the Bible in Leviticus. And especially on the day of atonement. Leviticus 16, I think there are 16 mentions of atonement on, in Leviticus 16, which speaks of the great day of atonement. 16 times in Leviticus 16 in that chapter. Certainly that day of atonement is an Old Testament picture of Calvary where that one perfect atonement covering was made by the Lord Jesus. We thank him. The altar. And do you notice that Isaiah confessed in verse 5 that he is a man of unclean lips. And then this seraph placed the live cool on his mouth, on his lips. Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. And purged, my middle margin in my Bible says, 
I thought it was interesting, atoned for or covered. So, thine iniquity is taken away and thy sin is atoned for. It's covered. It's taken care of. Thank God that we can, under the Lordship of Christ, be forgiven of our sins and iniquities like Isaiah was, so we can be when we confess and repent and leave our sins. Thine iniquity is taken away and thy sin purged. Thank God. Now, David said, after his terrible sin with Bathsheba, David said, I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. That was in the Old Testament. And the New Testament, 1 Peter 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank God. I thank God for forgiveness of sins for Isaiah. Wonderful back there. For David, how wonderful that was for him. But 1 John 1, 9, it's for us too. A better vision of forgiveness of sins that Christ offers his children, his people. Not just one time, but many times. And then in closing, thinking just a little bit about verse 8. where we see a better vision of responsibility and response. Now, remember we saw Isaiah had that better vision of the glory of God, which led to his better vision of his own sinful self, which led in turn to a better vision of the freedom of forgiveness. Now, there's another step in the Christian's life lived for the Lord. If we really appreciate the forgiveness that he offers and that he gives, after we see our own sinfulness and after we see the glory of God, if we really appreciate that, then we will respond like Isaiah responded. The question was asked, God himself asked the question there that day, whom shall I send and who will go for me? And did you think about it that no heavenly being responded? No angel did, no seraph, nobody. No heavenly being of the various kinds of angels and orders of angels You know, God could have arranged things differently. Couldn't have he? Sure he could have. He could have ordered uh, for the message of salvation to be given some other way. Oh, he wouldn't have been limited by any means. He could have gotten angels to come down and preach and preach and preach. He could have written that in the heavens, in the sky. Or he could have personally thundered it from heaven. Or many other ways that he could have done it. But he chose that humans 
sinful humans who are forgiven and repentant can do that and should do that and need to do that. God's forgiven ones, God's cleansed ones. You know that God's cleansed ones, God's forgiven people have been mandated, have been charged with proclaiming the good news. Um, if you don't know that, you maybe need to, would do well to check out Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, or there's other places we could look in the scripture too. Jonah that day basically said, in effect, Jonah said, when God came to him, he said, here am I, and I'm not going. Moses, when God approached him and asked him to serve him, Moses, in effect, said, here am I, send Aaron. But Isaiah said, here am I, send me. And I'm just hoping here at the close of this sermon that I'm the kind of person that keeps saying that. And I'm hoping that there are lots of Isaiahs here today who have seen and will continue to see a better view of the glory of God and who also have, will be able to better see their own sinfulness as they gaze at the glory of God. Who, after that then, appreciate God's forgiveness more and also have a better vision of our responsibility, the responsibility that God has charged us with, of responding like Isaiah did, here am I, send me. Will you bow with me, or will you kneel with me for prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we're grateful today that when you approached Isaiah that day, that he said, here am I, send me. And we remember and know, Heavenly Father, that really you have called every one of your children to that. You have said, who will go for us? Who shall I send? Who will go for us? And I pray that in, from our hearts, every one of us here would be saying Honestly saying, here am I, send me. And that sending could be this week with just saying a word for the Lord. Or it could be answering the call to teach school somewhere. Or teach a Sunday school class. Or it could be to be a missionary. Or it could be lots of other things. Even things like obeying my teacher a little better at school. Or, those, or, yes, Lord, I pray that, I thank you that as we really say from our hearts, send me, here am I, send me, that you will, in your faithfulness, hold us accountable and send us areas of life where we really have the opportunity to say yes to your will. I pray that we would be a people that are indeed saying yes to your will many times and every time per day, or per week, or per month, or per year, or per lifetime, Heavenly Father, that we would sincerely and honestly say, here am I, send me. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.